I am Joe Poznanski, and uh, as you know, our usual uh, co-host, Michael Shore, is off finishing season four of The Good Place, and we'll hopefully be back uh, soon, but uh, we have our our usual cavalcade of, of guest star hosts, and this week, I, I, I've been giddy about this for days now, ever since I knew this was going to happen. I cannot tell you how excited do I have uh as our co-host this week um writer well, i guess actress first actress writer poet there's like a, like a huge long list of things to say uh but ellen adair is with us ellen welcome thank you i'm so giddy to be here <laughs> i feel like this is also a good place it is this is a good place i tell yeah. michael that all the time i tell him that all the time he doesn't believe me. He doesn't think this is a good place <laughs> at all. Uh, but this is so great. This is this is so wonderful. I, I uh, am a, a huge fan. My wife, I think I've told you, my wife is a huge fan of your of your work uh, acting. I I would say that I am as well, except for I don't watch that much stuff. And so she has told me how great you are on Homeland and Billions and all these other things that I would love to see and 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 need to do. But I've been. I've been busy doing things that are not as important as watching you perform, but, um, I but don't know so that there's anything like less important than, than watching TV. I mean, I love watching TV. It's great, okay. but, and it's part of my job is to watch TV. It's of why course. I'm so lucky, but yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, you, you are, you are looking at other things that are equally important to watching TV, I, if not more. Yes. I guess that's yeah. probably true. My my big issue is if I start watching something, I get very obsessive about it. Like, you know, like binge watching is the worst invention ever anyway. But for me particularly, like somebody told me, ah, oh, you ought to binge watch Mad Men. You've never seen Mad Men. So I said, okay, I'll binge watch Mad Men. And then I watched all of Mad Men in like four days. I said, oh my I, God. And it's bad because then, you know, if you watch that much television in a row, you start feeling like you're actually in the show. It's it's not, I just don't think it's very healthy to do that. But I would love to, uh, I'd love to watch more more shows. I, you know, you are, I believe, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong with this. I, I think I picked this up from, from your Twitter. You are a fan of, of Game of Thrones, correct? Is I that, am. That... I am a fan of Game of Thrones. Yes. But oh, okay. I, I know that you're not. And so I did not come here expecting to talk about Game of Thrones. No, it's but it's it's a very uh, this is a disappointing thing. I feel so left out. I had I, Linda Holmes was on a couple of weeks ago and, and Linda Holmes does not watch Game of Thrones either. Uh, we both just felt like we we got caught behind and then we never caught up. And then once once we even thought about catching up, it was like way too late or whatever. So. I just feel like I'm missing this cultural phenomenon. And my wife is, she does watch Game of Thrones. So she sort of fills me in. And I, I literally, she watched, uh, I guess we're doing this on Monday. She watched, I guess, what is the penultimate uh, Game of Thrones, right? Is there only one more Game of Thrones? There are after? two more. Two more. Okay. So, so I had that wrong. And, and she said, is it okay if I watch, you know, I was in the room reading. She said, is it okay if I watch? I said, of course she watched it. And I looked up and I just saw like a, a dragon. I, I don't want to 
give it away in case there are spoilers or whatever. Like I could give it away, but I saw a dragon <laughs> in some, it was bad. It was really gross. Actually, It was bad. It was bad. It was, it was really bad. And, and I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should be glad I didn't start watching this show because that's, that was gross. Well, yeah, it depends if you're, if you are not a fan of gross things, you <laughs> will probably not be a fan of Game of Thrones. And, you know, I, I'm a weirdo, um, and we might as well get that out of the way uh, right, right now. Away. Yes. Okay. Um, and there are things about Game of Thrones that I really love and are like the wheelhouse of things that Ellen Adair enjoys. And then there are other things that I'm like, how did I get myself into this? Um, <laughs> and I, I specifically felt that way about not this last episode, but the episode before, which was a huge battle with zombies and I, so I do not love horror movies. Um, I have learned recently that I love to be in horror movies. And actually this was a theory of mine for a long time. Like I'm very easily scared. And so I thought I should use this power for good rather than evil. And I should be in a horror movie and like, be very easily scared. Of course, the joke was on me because I ended up playing the person in that horror movie who was probably the least scared of any of the people (laughs) in the film, but I had a great time, so no complaints. Um, However, uh, yeah, there's... My husband is a huge horror fan, and he's always trying to get me to watch horror movies with him. And he's said to me, like, if you can deal with these things in Game of Thrones, then you could deal with these other horror movies, to which I always say, but when they happen in Game of Thrones, I don't want to be watching them. But I've just been invested for this many years that I'm not going to stop watching just because there's a lot of zombies. Like, I need to know what happens to these people. I really care about them. So... Uh, yeah, and in fact, my husband felt very much the same way that you did. He had never watched Game of Thrones. Um, that had always been something that I did because um, people fighting with swords is basically my favorite genre. And so yeah. I, I'm I'm in as soon as people are fighting with swords. And so I had watched the series myself. And actually, the first season, I was a little like, oh, my God, there's so many people and I can't keep track of them. And there's like way too much sex position and it, it was a little while before I realized, oh, that's part of the point is that there are all of these people and they're all jockeying for position. Oh, I get it now. It's a game of thrones. <laughs> um, and yeah, from that point, I was pretty hooked. But he decided, my husband, while I was away shooting aforementioned horror movie, to like binge yeah. all of game of thrones and catch up so that we could watch the final season together which has been which has been very That's touching. fun that yes is, and I, i'm grateful fun. to him yeah that is touching my my wife never she she knows i i don't like horror movies either and and it's not i just don't nothing about them moves me at all i mean i like i don't of course you know i, I don't particularly care about wanting to be scared or whatever, but I don't like them. I feel like there's like enough in life to be scared about. I just, there's nothing, there's nothing to me that, that is appealing about that. So my wife, and not that Game of Thrones is a horror movie, but she, you know, she knows I'm not a huge fan of violence in, in, in that capacity. And she just, 
she never even asked me. She asked me to watch uh, Downton Abbey with her. Uh. That was like her thing was like, I had to watch Downton Abbey and, and I did try that uh, for a little while. But again, uh, when you're way behind and you, you're trying to catch up, these, these shows do not hold up. It's, it's, it's much more difficult to, yeah. to do that. So well, Abbey anyway. got not so good after a while also. Like it was, it was. Well, that's great. probably when I started watching. It was great for a couple of seasons, and then, and then after a while, it transformed from the kind of show that like my husband and I would watch with rapt attention to the kind of show where like right. one of us would go into the kitchen to like you know get another snack and be like, "Nah, you don't need to pause it. I know what's going to happen in this scene." So yeah, <laughs> we actually, we actually, I, I, we, are, we're, we're way off the deep end on on tangents here, but there was, we were watching Downton Abbey. Uh, the first time that that my wife said, "You need to watch Downton Abbey with me," and I said, "Of course, I'm, you know, that's that's the kind of husband I want to be." So I'm I'm sitting there watching it, and there was a t- uh, moment at the dinner table where whoever the Lord of of Downton Abbey, I guess, was yelling at a young woman who was like being belligerent and 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 I guess I don't know what she was being exactly. I, I couldn't fully follow it, but he was he was he was yelling at her for being uh, something. And, and I, I remember this scene, I was watching it and then I sort of faded off and, and Margot, uh, my wife decided it was way better just to move on without me and watch Downton Abbey. And probably two years later, uh, I was in, in the room and it was just reading and she was watching Downton Abbey and I looked up and it was a scene where the Lord of the Manor was yelling at the same young woman uh, for whatever it was that she was being belligerent about. And I said, is this a repeat of the show? And she said, no, this is a completely different scene. And I thought, boy, I didn't miss anything. I, did, <laughs> I absolutely did not miss a single thing. But anyway, we are not here to talk about Downton Abbey and Game of Thrones, although, of course, we already have. Uh, you are my favorite baseball fan in the entire world. Oh. I have to tell you this. You are. You are. You know, I mean, you... My wife is, and I think this is why, because my wife is a similarly driven baseball fan in that you are, you are, of course, a very, very passionate Phillies fan, which I'm sure we will talk about at some point, but you're also just a huge fan of the game, right? You love every element of baseball. I just think that's the coolest thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you should really thank my parents because I, that's sort of the way that they raised me. Um, was to love baseball, you know, I mean, it's hard to say whether I love baseball more than the Phillies. I think in years when the Phillies are really, really bad, I, I, I might, of course you do. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, to just really love, um, to be able to appreciate excellence in, in any team and to fall in love with players from other teams and kind of root for them as long as you, you maintain your original allegiance to the Phillies. And I, uh, I wrote actually a series of, or no, no, no. I wrote an article, just one very long article. It felt like a series um, <laughs> about what I call my complex flow chart of baseball allegiances. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, my, my dad uh, reading this, which my dad does not uh, interface with a computer at all. Um, he's lucky that he's of an age where he can just decide, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. And people are like, that's, that's okay. Uh, so, uh, my, my lovely stepmother, uh, 
probably, I think, printed out the article for him to read and he read it. And then he wrote back to me two, one letter outlining his own flowchart of baseball allegiances. And like, I liked this team because of these players and, and, and then sent me a follow-up letter. That's like, I've thought about this more. And I just, uh, yeah, I, it was, it was a moment where if, if it wasn't, if it hadn't already been abundantly clear to me that I am the way that I am, because that's the way my parents <laughs> raised me to be, it enforced that viewpoint. There are a couple of things I have to ask you about this story because I, I love this story so much. One is, are, are you saying that your father sent you two letters using stamps and mail? Is that is this how you got these letters that your father sent you? Yes, my father regularly sends me letters using stamps and mail. I um, love and that. we so we much. talk on the telephone as well. Um, so, okay. but but yes, and you know, I I I feel poorly because I don't often send him back mail. Um, I just get the letter and then like we talk on the telephone and I tell him the things. Um, but I, I love them. I save all of his letters. Yes. Um, No, I, I think that is so, you know, that, that is as writers, I mean, I I feel we are missing so much without doing that. You know, I have decided I've, I've, I've announced this on this podcast before I send people typewritten letters now that I, that I do on a hand uh, that uh, on a manual typewriter, uh, that I bought. Um, and I, I picked that up from, um, like a documentary. Oh, it was Tom Hanks in, a, in the documentary about typewriters, uh, talked about how, if somebody sends him an email, who cares, he'll throw it out immediately. But if somebody sends him a typewritten note, he'll keep that because it, it means something, even if it's somebody he doesn't necessarily know or whatever. And I thought that's so true. That's so true. So I love the fact that your father sends you letters. Um, my in-laws send us letters, which is, which is, I think, incredibly cool but the second thing is so so your father enormous baseball fan would you say i mean this 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 is clearly where where this comes from both of my parents are enormous baseball fans um they're 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 not together anymore um my dad is in bloomington indiana and my mom is in philadelphia um but they're (laughs) both huge baseball fans and i will talk about baseball with both of them i think that's i i you know, because of, so as much as I may, uh, I don't know, shake my fist at technology at times, I'm very grateful to the fact that I have MLB TV and MLB audio and can listen to or watch any Phillies game pretty much when I want, which is also great. So, you know, whenever I'm like, uh, 2019, I'm like, on the other hand, I can listen to baseball (laughs) anytime I want. So there's that. Um, So I think in terms of sort of like day-to-day obsessiveness, I may have at this point surpassed either of my parents. Um, well, with, it's just so much easier now to do that. As, as you say, for, for technology purposes, it's so much easier. Uh, but I would say, I would make the argument that back before the technology was so insane, and you're, you're much younger than me, but, but you going back to the, to the seventies and eighties, um, your obsession was just getting any information that you could get about your team or about a team that you, you know, didn't know anything about that these people that, you know, I can remember, I, I was a big fan of Dave Winfield when I was young, um, you know, Dave Winfield, when he was 
with the Padres in the late seventies, I was 10, 11 years old, right around then. And then he went in, you know, he became a Yankee of course, and, and, and all of that. But when he was very young, I was a big fan and the, I, I was a big fan, even though I had seen him play one time mm-hmm. in my entire life. And that was in an all-star game where he had like two at bats or something. That's lit. Mm-hmm. There was, there was, I was never going to see a Padres game. It was never going to happen. They were never going to be on, on uh, Sunday, you know, Saturday afternoon baseball or Monday night baseball. Uh, there was, there was, they were never going to play my team. I grew up in Cleveland. They were never going to play Cleveland. Uh, so he was just a box score name. That's all he was. And, and, uh, and yet I was obsessively a fan of Dave Winfield for a period of time. So I do think there is something back then that was a little bit different about obsession, but now it's a lot like binge watching. Mm-hmm. If, if you're, if you're an obsessive now, you, there's no limit to what you can do. Yeah. Except, except for your own time and sanity. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, well, but who cares about those things? But who cares right? about those things? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I actually will. And, and this is something that I was going to bring up earlier when we were discussing binge watching. So I grew up without a television. Um, really? Yeah. Because uh, my parents are both college professors. So they were just like, we will have no TV in our house. And, and my dad didn't realize, I think, when he let the computer come into the house that it was eventually going to turn into a television. But <laughs> right. I, I didn't. Yeah. But he, I mean, he doesn't interface with it anyway. So, um, yeah, I didn't have a proper television until my my husband, then boyfriend and I moved in together in in 2010. Um, so is- even through college, you did no television. I mean, I didn't ever own one myself. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, by that point in college, like you could get a lot of TV type content on your computer. So uh, it's, you know, it's not to say that I was totally unfamiliar because I I certainly remember being out of college and like having a the old school Netflix account with like the three DVDs, you know, always one of which was like a serious movie that you were like, I'm going to watch you, whatever, like the pianist, like I promise. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I had some familiarity, but anyway, all of this is a roundabout way to say that I grew up mostly, um, going to games. We went to a lot of Phillies games, but also, um, listening to the games on the radio was, was the main way that I received them. And like, neither of my parents have a television to this day. Um, so my mom listens to the radio. That's the main way that she receives those reports. And my dad will go over to a neighbor's house and watch the Phillies <laughs> with him, um, which is perfectly acceptable. And also like, you know, sometimes people ask me like, did your parents forbid you from seeing television at other kids' houses? I was like, no, no, not at all. Um, and it made me good at cultural osmosis. That is like, it getting as much as I could out of one episode to be like, what is this show about? And who are these actors and what are the characters that they play so that I could pretend like I knew what people were talking about on the playground. Um, but uh, yes. So I, I remember I distinctly in uh, like watching the, the 1993 Phillies Sure. You know, when when they made their playoff run and then then it was worth going to a neighbor's house and watching on the television and kind of being like, that's what they look like. Like, I kind <laughs> of knew, but like, ah. and it was like not always a pleasant experience with that 1993 well, team, as you can probably not imagine. for that 1993 Phillies. Yeah, yeah. That was not a pleasant not, experience in yeah, any way. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, I, that is so I, great. Yeah, it was it was a pleasant experience. I I remember people on the streets of Philadelphia famously chanting, "We're number two after the Phillies lost. So like, it was nice to make it that far, which is as far as they'd made it in my lifetime at that point. So. Well, I love that team. I love that 93 Phillies team. I, I, I was at that series, uh, and, and, uh, was there for, uh, I was not there for the Mitch Williams, uh, Joe Carter moment, but I was there for, for earlier games in that series. And, and that Phillies team, that's what's so funny about that is half of the, half of the joy it seemed of that Phillies team was that they were just a whole bunch of softball playing tobacco chewing, you know, John Crux, right? I mean, they were just yeah, like totally. a whole bunch of just, and yet you had no, you were, I mean, as far as you knew, they could have been like guys in tuxedos. It's yeah. just like, I mean, yep. like you just were suddenly you're looking like, wait a minute, that's what John Crux looks like. That doesn't, that seems like a whole new experience to me. I mean, he was still a hero, you know, like I did, it didn't, it didn't change, it didn't t- change no. my adoration of it, but you know, it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you remember, and this is going to like really out me as the child of NPR that I obviously was the first time you saw what Garrison Keeler looked like. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that moment, but like, I remember that moment very, yeah. very distinctly. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. All right then. Like. Glad that God has a place for all of us, you know? Yes. Well, you know, especially him because he just was so gawky. And I mean, in addition to everything else, just being like, you just don't, you don't expect people when you hear them on the radio to be like six foot 11 or whatever. I mean, it's just like very odd, very odd. But I've been that way about everybody that I listen to on the radio because, you know, radio is a huge, huge part of of, of my life. And, and I loved, I preferred, I mean, I grew up, you know, you know, enough earlier than you that there were, you know, the games weren't on television. I mean, you would, you would get, you would get, you know, a couple games a week maybe. And and that was it. So everything was the radio. And then you meet that person for the first time who's on the radio and you're like, they speak and you hear that voice and you're like, this is not possible that that voice is coming out of that face. Like that doesn't, that doesn't add up to me at all. But I, I love that this was like, like that you grew up not because it sounds to me like you just grew up in a very academic environment, right? It's, I mean, you both your parents, professors, there's no television in the house. There's just this, this sense of, of, you know, that this is, this is incredibly great, but uh, there was baseball, like, like baseball yes. seemed like that was the, that was the, the bit of, uh, of, of, you know, fun that, uh, that everybody in the family shared. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. We would go out to movies and I, and, oh, sure. uh, and plays, right. Yeah. And plays certainly. Um, so I, I, it didn't, but I don't know, somehow baseball didn't feel different to me than those things. Like it yeah. was, it was all, these are the things that we enjoy. And yeah, I just, you know, I read a lot of books when I was a kid and I'm not, they weren't all, it wasn't like, you know, I was, I was there at eight years old reading war and peace or something like I was reading kids <laughs> books, but I was just reading books instead of watching TV. So, but I know this to be true of you because, and I, I did my research and, and, and I especially wanted to scout you out before we do our draft here in a little bit. Oh. Uh, and I do know that your life sort of took a huge turn uh, when you went to see uh, Kenneth Branagh's uh, Henry V when you were seven years old. So 
That's a it little did. bit different. Yeah, yeah. that I was love that movie. Oh my gosh, it's it's like probably got to be one of my top five favorite movies of all time. Not necessarily best, just favorite, and because it yeah. made such an impression on me. And so you know, on the one hand, it takes to you know parents who I was. I think I was seven, I was six or seven, uh, to, to take a child to be like, we are going to take our child to this, like mo- this Shakespeare movie, you know, <laughs> that is not a comedy. Um, I had got, I had been to Shakespeare plays. I think the earliest Shakespeare play I remember seeing was Twelfth Night. Um, but then it took like me being me to be like, yes, this is my thing. Because I made my parents take me back five more times and... <laughs> wrote a I mean I assume your your research involved this story as well but I wrote a letter um of course this was the way that you did it in those days to the to the local movie theater being like may I please have the movie poster for Kenneth Branagh's (laughs) Henry V assigned Ellen Adair age six and they gave it to me um because I bet they don't get a lot of those requests um, Probably not. So yeah, it was I. It I think I fell in love with with Shakespeare and and with the man Henry V and and possibly with Kenneth Branagh at the same time. Although Von Hayes was the first man that I ever loved. So uh, uh, of course, yeah. Well, that's I was about to ask you who your first true baseball hero was, and and uh, and finding out that it's Von Hayes is is excellent in all ways because of course I grew up. As a uh, as a Cleveland fan, I grew up growing up in Cleveland, and uh, remember the Indians trading uh, Von Hayes for five players, um, of which uh, the only one that actually turned out was Julio Franco. But um, but Von Hayes was so that is your first true baseball hero. Yes, yeah. Like yeah. I was young and enough why? that I I don't remember why. I just know that I loved him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, because was I it had the name? no, no. I think we went to some game and he probably like hit a couple of home runs or something, and I was excited and I was like, "That's my guy." Um, yeah, that's that's what I that's what I would guess happened. Um, I may, maybe he did, you know, made a great catch or something, and I love that too. But I I have no memory because like this was I was I don't know like three or four at the time that I sure. decided this. So that's why, you know, it, it had nothing to do with analytics at that point in my life. Um, <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were saying, you were thinking, even though they had not invented war yet, you were thinking, you know, he's a good, <laughs> solid you know, three to four war player. And exactly. um, yeah, but, but here's, here's, here's the way I would, I would ask this question. So it's, you don't really remember how it began, but you do vividly remember loving Von Hayes, right? I, mean, I like, do. Like, like. And how did that play out in your, in your life? Well, I I remember that I, I had a like little Phillies shirt and that I asked my mom to sew a number nine on the back of it (laughs) so that I would like be like him. Cause this was back in the day before you could buy player specific jerseys for, you know, for your child or your gerbil or whatever. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to represent and I, you know, to this day, I still, uh, that's for me, that is, that is how I affirm that like, this is my guy is that I get a shirt for that, for that person. 
Like that's that right, seals so, the deal for me. So give us a give us a general number of how many shirts of baseball players you have gotten <laughs> through the years. Uh, over the years. Over the year, yeah, we're talking from beginning to now. Oh gosh, uh, I, I mean, I feel like it has to be more than twenty. Wow, wow, that's just, and that continues, obviously. Yes, yeah. So, what shirts do you have currently? What it, what it would, what would be in your current stable of baseball shirts? Well, I have a, I have a couple of Reese Hoskins shirts and a couple obviously. of Aaron Nola shirts. And, Obviously. you know, I just because I'm so good at talking about nothing, I want to I want to back up slightly and tell the tell the story of the acquisition of the of the Reese Hoskins shirt, because <laughs> normally I think about things for for a little while, like I'm considered even if I have affection for somebody, I don't quite know why I like loved Aaron Nola as soon as he came up. I was like, I love this guy, but right. I waited for a little while to get a shirt. I just wanted to be sure. And <laughs> uh, and with with Reese, I was doing a, an off-Broadway show when he came up. And I I mean, for me, that moment in in recent Phillies history, it was just like the light at the end of the tunnel when Reese Hoskins just came up and started hitting every home single runs. ball for a home run. It's yes. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Broke broke the record. And um it was to the point where I would come into the ladies' dressing room looking excited, and the mm -hmm. other like beautiful, wonderful ladies who were in that play uh, would be like, "Did did your boy? Did he hit another home run?" And I would be like, "He did, <laughs> he did." Like they they didn't know, you know, Reese Hoskins from I don't know whomever, like right, Michael Franco or Manny Machado. <laughs> like they didn't know who he was, but they knew that I was excited about this thing. So like it, it became huge for me that I was like a good thing is happening for the Phillies. And wow. so my husband went to a game. I think it was my mom's birthday game. We always go to Phillies games for my mom's birthday. And I could not go because I was doing the show in New York, but my husband went to Philly and this ended up being the game where Reese broke the record for like fastest player to 10 home right. runs. Well, I, think 10 home runs I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And so my husband at the store there bought me a Hoskins shirt and came home with it. Like now I know it's a little early, you know, cause he had just come <laughs> up and like took the shirt out. And I was just like, yes, yes, I do Reese. I do like, I will love you forever. I mean, we had seen him, I think it was earlier that year in AAA. So like, it wasn't, it wasn't like him coming up into the majors was my first introduction to him as a player. But, um, Anyway, so yes, I have a couple of Reese Haskins shirts. Uh, I actually sort of have three. Um, yeah, I have two Aaron Nola shirts. And then um, I have a, a Xander Bogarts shirt. He's sort of my Red Sox baseball boyfriend because they, they were, okay. I, I went to school in Boston. And so that was kind of the start of actually really adopting another fandom because um, I was okay. there in 2004 and 2007. So it was like a good good interesting times to uh be in boston um and uh i have uh this is very complicated i have a few noah Syndergaard <laughs> shirts too because i just love noah Syndergaard and i can't help it um and yeah but it's it's complicated with me and the mets right now my husband is a mets fan 
Um, he he's a grown, born, raised Mets fan. I mean, no, no, Mets. no. Maybe it's worse. Uh, and I and I don't I don't want to. I mean, worse. yeah, he he's he's chosen he's chosen the Mets. Um, why, why why did he do that to himself? Well, what was the what was the reasoning? Well, we've li- I I've lived in Queens now for ten years. It was ten years in April. And okay. so City Field is sort of our home ballpark. Sure. And, sure, that's true. And when my husband and I first met, I was like, are you a baseball fan? And he said, right. yes. And I was like, and what's your team? Because if it had been the Yankees, even though I was raised to like love all baseball, I was also raised on a fundamentalist hatred of the Yankees. I don't know if it's just that's because... True. There, it's necessary to have some kind of an other to like root against anyway. So like that might maybe would have been an issue also because I knew at this point that he was from Iowa. So if he was from <laughs> Iowa and was a Yankees fan, maybe he wasn't somebody that I wanted to get involved with. Like if you were born in the Bronx, I get it. If I had been born in the Bronx, I would probably be a Yankees fan too. So, and he said at the time, he was like, no, no, I think like, I think I like the Red Sox. And I was like, okay, like pass. Uh, and, uh, so he's been, he was before, um, my introduction into his life, like a little bit more of a casual baseball fan, like definitely enjoyed it. Um, but uh, my, my baseball fandom is just so rabid that I've ultimately infected him as well. Uh, and he will cheer for the Phillies with me, but like, he's never lived in Philadelphia he doesn't have that much of a strong tie to it. So I think after a long time of us going to City Field and like, for me, after a while, sort of being like, okay, like if we're just here to see the Mets play the Brewers or something like, yeah, sure. Like I want the Mets to win. Um, he decided to be to be really a Mets fan. Um, the, the tenuous agreement upon which our marriage is predicated is that, however, when the Mets are not playing the Phillies, uh, that I will root for the Mets. And when the Phillies are not playing the Mets, that he will root for the Phillies with me. Um, but it's going to be complicated this year. The NL East. Saying, when they the play desk. each other, you just, this is, this is, it's very complicated. Yeah, it's complicated, except for he's a better person than I am. So when <laughs> the Phillies beat the Mets, he's able to be sort of happy for me. Uh, okay. And when the Mets beat the Phillies, I am still inconsolable. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's because his Mets fandom does not come from childhood. It is a, it is a it is a later thing and I'm, that that's not to say it can't be a Mets. He's from Iowa. He could easily be a Cubs fan or a Royals fan. I mean, he it, like there's there's there are other options out there. there I'm are. just saying you don't you don't adopt like taking on the Mets is like it's like inheriting you know the world's problems like like, <laughs> like like if you're a Mets fan growing up all right you have to deal with it you know it's uh it's funny I was I just did an interview with uh with Hank Azaria and and he's a big big Mets fan but he went he was lived in LA for like 28 years or something like that and he said that when he was away he tried to uh, become a Dodgers fan. He was there. He was in LA. He was going to Dodger Stadium to to see games, and he said he couldn't do it. And he and and rather than become a Dodgers fan, he just stopped caring about baseball for uh, for for an extended period of time. He just stopped caring, and then they moved. He moved back to New York, and instantly he'd be like the, the Mets thing uh, came back, and he became this huge Mets fan. 
And he just said, I, you know, I don't know what it is. And I said, it's, it's misery is what it is. It's <laughs> like you, you, you clearly need it in your life. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, you can go and be a fun, casual Mets fan, but, but to, to take on that, that depth of, of, you know, it's like, it's, I always say like now uh, the Cleveland Browns are look like they're going to be good. And there will be people who will take on the Browns and become fans. And, and that's fine. I, I don't care. That's, that's fine for them, but you don't, you don't take that on with that, like voluntarily, like that's not something that you do uh, unless you, uh, unless you just have it from the beginning. So, but yeah, Hank could have become that, an angels fan. That would have been my he, solution he, for him. Like, I think so, but he he just couldn't care about baseball when he was. I, I you know look being an Angels fan in, in L.A. is no is no great shakes either. I mean that's that's a that's a nightmare to try to get. But out I'm just there saying, if he was addicted there. to misery, like he could do, he could do, that, well, that option was there for him. I don't know though. In the 2000s, those Angels they 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 had some you know they won a World that's Series. True. They had some, some really good teams. They're miserable now. They, they they drive me insane. I know you love you have to because as a as a baseball fan and and someone who loves the game, you have to love Mike Trout, right? You, of you course, Mike Trout. I assume, of course. All right. So so how insane does it drive you that Mike Trout can't be on a winning team? Does it, that it, does that drive you nuts? It, it yeah. It like I wake up at night, I like turn over and I'm like, oh, Mike Trout. And then I like go back to sleep. Yeah, it's it's really sad. Like, I really want that for him. And and so I guess that's that's what I was thinking of um, more recent history. Just, you know, and it sort of seems like every year they're like, oh, OK, like, well, they added these pieces. And like, is that is that going to do it? Um, and I mean, of course, like uh, as not a totally 100% altruistic baseball fan, there was a part of me that would be like, wouldn't it be great if Mike Trout would in fact sign with the Phillies and the Phillies could take him <laughs> to the postseason? But of course, that's not going to happen now. And I was never one of those people who was like, oh, the Phillies should not sign Bryce Harper or Manny Machado and they should wait for Mike Trout because that was just dumb. Clearly, both at that time, I thought it was dumb and now obviously dumb. I, I sort of feel like the yeah. Phillies might have signed the last free agent. Well, that's sort first of, of like, all, that's true. The last true. unicorn or something like that. Like, <laughs> we, like we got him. There will never be another one. And the, the, there were once free agents like thundering across the American plains. <laughs> and now we've trapped this last one. Hooray for 13 years. We've got him. It's, it's, it's nice to have the last free agent. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because when that all was going on and there were some Phillies fans who really were saying like, yeah, you know, Harper is, is, you know, we, we really need to focus on trout. It's so reminded me of a certain kind of fan. And right now, the only place you see that I think that you see it at its best is Knicks fans who are, who are sitting there going, well, you know, Sure, we want Durant, but we also want the and you know, like they, they they've already got like this super team built and they're probably not gonna get anybody because yeah. they're the Knicks and so they're not gonna get anybody. Yep. And and I just find that like Philly's like get who you can now. Like yes. there's there's this it, it's not it's not like there's this incredible history of success going on here. I mean, let's get the best players now. That seems like the best call to me. Yeah. Yeah, it was, oh man, when I look back at how I felt over this past off season, like I, oh I, I feel like a different person. 
I'm like, man, <laughs> you know, that those were tough times. I don't know. I don't know how I got, I got through it. You know, it's like, I, I, I mentally see myself kind of like on a bare mattress, like needing a shave, even though I'm a woman, like that's how I look back at myself and just thank God that's over. <sighs> that was rough. All right. Before we go to our draft, we always do something on the show that we call the Yankee Minute. Yankee Minute. We have our own theme song and everything. And uh, and in the Yankee Minute, what we discuss is uh, how much we hate the Yankees. Um, and, and this is something that it seems like you are perfectly suited to do. Uh, Evan, growing up in Philadelphia and and being a Phillies fan, you have every right to hate the Yankees, uh, even though they weren't directly in your line of fire, right? Like, I mean, you're, you're being a National League fan. They're not directly in your line of fire. But please explain to us for a couple of minutes why the Yankees are just terrible. Yeah, well, I, I mean, oh, gosh, in only a minute. Uh, so I think the, no, as much time as you want, yeah, we just call the, the reason Yankees. that I was was raised to hate the Yankees is because like they're the big bully of baseball right. because they're they have won the most championships and because you know they historically always have the highest payroll and just sign all of the best guys that all of the other teams have apparently grown just so that they can become a Yankee. And I grant that that is not the case anymore. Um, right. On the other hand, I feel like the organization still has accrued that spiritual energy of entitlement around it. <laughs> that like we, if any year that we do not win the world series is a failure. And I I just I just can't stand it. And and I, what I really can't stand is when Yankees fans will if they lose a game go back to history to be like, "Yeah, well, how many rings does your team have?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Right, but you saying that right now is what makes you the worst. It's what makes you hateable." I mean, also the fact that my husband and I go to many games at Yankee Stadium just so that we can like see American League teams and root inevitably against the Yankees. And um and it it seems to me like Yankees fans show up super late to the games and leave really early. They come in, they're like toxic for a few innings and then leave. And, and to me, I'm like, that's not, that's not like, I don't know, real fandom that that's just like, I wanted to feel better than something for a little while. And so like I came here and, and yelled and so my first year in in New York City was 2009 uh and oh. uh I, I you know I as I, I moved here in April of 2009 and right. uh that was a rough year for you it was a rough year and I was also doing a show in the city at the time but I remember there was a game that I could go to and I did not have a television at this point in my life because my husband and I were not yet living together. And, uh, and so I went to a bar by myself to watch the game, thinking that like, that would be a nice thing to do. And, sure. you know, was wearing 
whatever, my Cole Hamill shirt or something like that. And, Got oh, it. I realized that we, I did not finish my long train of uh, baseball t-shirts that I own, but I'm fine <laughs> because that would take like three hours. Anyway, um, and I got like really like yelled at and like mocked and taunted by Yankees fans at the bar. And I was like, I am a lone woman at this bar just trying to watch my team lose to your team in the World Series. Like, please leave me alone. And I really had this like thought of like, gosh, everything that my mom taught me about Yankees fans was right. Um, so I do have some friends that are Yankees fans and and they are, are lovely human beings. Um, and the Yankees are slightly less hateable, uh, like right now that most of their players are on the injured list. On the other hand, I feel like the Yankees deserve an entire uh, century of being really terrible and like not winning any more World Series before like I before they could be redeemed. Um, and yes. I don't think that that's yeah. going to happen. Oh, no, it's of course it's not going to happen. See, this is this is our big beef, by the way. Thank you for that story. Uh, it, it is it is uh, so important uh, to 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 share our, our Yankee hatred with each other. Um, there's something about the Yankees that drive Mike and I insane. And we talk about it all the time because, look, it's when the Yankees had the best players and and spent the most money and all of those things. I mean, look, what are you going to do? They were, they were hateable, but what are you going to do? You, they, they were the, the, you know, it's, 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 the, you know, there, that famous saying that, uh, that, that was, that came up in the fifties that rooting for the Yankees is like rooting for us steel is exactly true, but the opposite hating the Yankees is as pointless as hating Apple or whatever. You know I mean? It just doesn't, <laughs> if there's like good good for you you know you can hate the yankees it's, it doesn't do anything for anybody but but the thing that drives us insane is then the yankees made a bunch of mistakes just a whole bunch of mistakes and they gave these crazy contracts to win that 2009 world series which they won but then they were stuck with all the the a-rod and the Teixeiras and the and jeter forever and 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 these guys were were beginning to decline and then they were diminished and then they were not any good at all anymore and the team still had to pay them and and it's like okay this is it this is the this is finally payback for all those years and we're like they weren't very good during that stretch of time but they were never bad it's like they couldn't like this team is like that team could lose 95 games they're terrible they 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 they're, they're a mess but they never were like a mess and then they made a whole bunch of trades that were i don't know what sort of hypnosis they were using to get these absurd the great young players for nothing. It was ridiculous. And, and then you, you just watching it in real time going, Oh my gosh, the Yankees are going to be back and they're going to be better than ever. And they're going to do it like with a whole bunch of kids and, Oh, it's just the worst. And then this year happened and, and, you know, we went into this year fully prepared. Uh, Mike and I, we would text each other nightly, fully prepared for the Yankees, to just dominate the world. Look, look at this team. And then everybody got hurt everybody well the whole team gets hurt and we're texting each other like man the, the yankees every single player on the yankees is hurt 
and they still didn't get bad. Even when like suddenly guys like Gio Urshela were just like, you know, turning into Tony Gwynn. That's what drives us insane. What drives us insane is when like Mike Talkman's and Gio Urshela's and, and, and guys like that start carrying that team to victories. They have and like, there's some weird black magic going on with the Yankees. That's what kills us. Totally. It's like they're like <laughs> zombie uh, zombies. You know what I mean? They're like zombies. Somehow they yes. another one just even even when you've when you've uh, like, you know, felled one, another one just like springs <laughs> up in its place. And I I think that if they if they were ever actually really bad that that we could breathe for a second, but the zombies keep coming. You know, they're never, they're never like so bad. So like there was a period, there was a time period when I was like, oh, the Yankees are rebuilding and baby bombers. I'm like, I don't know. Like, do I really hate Aaron Judge? Like that, the thought crossed my mind at one point in my life. Do I really hate Aaron Judge? It was a trap, like still a zombie because then all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, they're so good already. They didn't even, they didn't even have to like fail to succeed for a little while. And now we're going to look at like another 10 years of the Yankees just wiping the AL East off the bottom of their cleats. And I mean, I'm thrilled that it's not happening right now. Um, Maybe somebody is using some kind of black magic, like to fight the black magic. (laughs) And like, maybe it's the Tampa Bay Rays. Like how thrilled would I be if the Rays somehow like, you know, had, had little voodoo dolls or something. And the problem is they've just got to make a voodoo doll for Talkman or something like that. And just, you know, (laughs) stick him in the ACO. It's so wonderful. But, but I got to tell you, you want to talk about it being a trap. I mean, Yes, they're, you know, they're they're behind Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay's super fun and interesting and they do all kinds of crazy things. Everybody's going to come back and they're all going to be healthy and they're just going to and they're just going <sighs> to they could be 10 games back in July and it wouldn't matter. They I, know. I just uh it just it breaks my heart. It just yeah. breaks my heart. But that's who they are. Okay. We are going to do our draft now. Uh, before I'm before we do our draft, I'm going to just say, I love you, Ellen Dare. I love you. And and you know that my wife and I want desperately to become couple friends with you. That's that's there's you nothing I would it. like that's, more. This is this is all we're living for at this the point. The love I is very mutual. Yeah. <laughs> so uh so before we do our draft, I have to ask you, you mentioned I don't want you to go through all of the shirts that you have, but I do want to ask you, uh has there been a shirt that you made? Because you you are very cautious when it comes to this. Have you made a regrettable decision in your life for a shirt? Is there a shirt that you look back on and go, eh, I, I, that, was a, yeah. that was a bad decision? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. Oh, God. Oh, God. Don't make me do it. Okay, so. You have to. Uh, you have to. Uh, in, in 2007, Jonathan Papelbon <laughs> was very charming. Oh, no, no. Yeah, I did it. I did it. No. I did it. I just, I just, he was so good. He was so good. And it was so charming when he like, you know, did a jig with like a beer box on his head. It was very charming. Um, And I was really grateful to him for, you know, closing out those games. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I regret that one. 
Wow. Yeah. Where is that Papelbon shirt right now? Oh, I still. Is that like in your closet? Is it is it wearable? I, I still I still own it. I, I'll like wear it to the gym with the sweatshirt over it. <laughs> <laughs> really cold if it's like under four layers or something. You know, when when they traded uh, Papelbon, you probably had to be thrilled like all Phillies fan were to get rid of him. And nobody thought he was tradable at the time. What was your emotions uh, now with with two people? I assume you will be getting a a, a Bryce Harper shirt at some point mm. with the with the choking incident. Like when you were watching that from afar, what, what what was your thought of that as a Phillies fan at that time? Well, yeah, at the time I was like, OK, those dickheads deserve each other, I guess, <laughs> at the time. Um, however, I I did think like Harper should have run out the base. Like that's what he like that's what Papelbon was mad about, if I recall, was that Harper was not going max effort. Right. On a fly on a on a fly ball, he did not run it out. Yeah. Yes. And uh and so like he should have done that. I applaud, you know, I mean for some reason, the pers- first person that I thought of was Brandon Nimmo. Like, Brandon Nimmo is always, like, on a walk. He is, like, trying to set the stat cast, like, sprint speed leaderboard <laughs> record. Um, like, you know, I, I, I really appreciate that. When I love that spirit in a player when they're always trying hard. So, like, Harper was kind of in the wrong. However, like, no one deserves to be choked for that or, like, for anything, in fact. So... I, I had to, even at that point in my life, think that uh, they were both in the wrong, but Papelbon was more in the wrong than Harper was at that at that point. Yeah, yeah. No, I really, 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 really sided with Papelbon, with uh, Harper, and not, not with Papelbon. I I actually called that. I wrote the, when when they when they made that deal. Uh, I wrote, and and there are not that many things I write that I look back on and go, boy, I was right because I'm very rarely right. Uh, but I wrote that was one of the worst trades in baseball history by the Nationals. And because I Yay! knew there was, not, <laughs> there was not a doubt in my mind that Papelbon was going to destroy that Nationals team. There was just there was literally no doubt in my mind that that was going to happen, that he was going to come in and he was going to be a cancer and he was going to he was going to, you know, they already they had uh, a really good closer who they had to they had to bump. And 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 uh, there was no doubt in my mind. And sure enough. That team went totally in the tank and Papelbon choked Harper. And it was, I, there, it's, it doesn't happen often, but every now and again, I get one right. So I was, I was pleased about that. All right. So we are going to do our draft and we had, we actually had several uh, exciting options for our draft because we, we did consider uh, drafting uh, uh, movies with sword fighting, uh, right? That was, that was one that we considered. That was an option. Yeah. That, w- that was a good option. By the way, I'm, I'm all for sword fighting, but do you not, I mean, what about the, what about the stabbing elements of this? That doesn't bother you at all? You're not a, you're, you don't care about like the stabbing? Stabbing is kind of gross. Stabbing is kind of gross, but it's like this, the kind of gross that I can deal with, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, it's, it's, I, I know it's, it's weird. It's a sort of a, like contradiction, um, but no, do I contradict myself? Very no, well, it's, then it's I good. contradict myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I was an English major. Um, yeah, yes. I do. I just, I, I enjoy it. And I think every, everything else that comes with the genre of people fighting with swords, which is like, it can encompass yes. fantasy and also not fantasy. It can be gladiator. It can it be can the be. three musketeers. It can be 
Sure. Yeah. It could be Princess Bride. Yeah. It could be yeah, the Princess Bride. I do love that film. Yeah. That's that's a great one. Okay. So we considered that. We considered uh, what were a couple of the other ones? Long novels. I think was one that we that we considered. I think um, what I said specifically was like books large enough to be plausibly used as a weapon. <laughs> um, but yes. Right. Right. Because um, I do tend to really and, like and, those books. But yeah. And did they have to be fiction or can they be nonfiction? Uh, I, I, I would. I would. I would have said any. Yeah. Okay, so the Cairo books would count, so I would be able to use the Cairo, the Robert Cairo. I'm sure that a mine would have been 100% fiction, um, probably, but yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, these were these were all uh, very exciting options, but what we are drafting uh, is is something dear to your heart. We are drafting uh, lines uh, from uh, Shakespeare plays, is what we are drafting, uh, which is very exciting. How old were you when you performed in your first uh, Shakespeare play? I was 12 years old. Uh, and I was in Julius Caesar. Wow. And, uh, it was a, it was a, uh, production of, well, like young adult production of Julius Caesar. Uh, so I, okay. at that point in my life, I was in Indiana and the now defunct, uh, Indiana Shakespeare company had decided to create a sort of a junior company with kids from, from middle school and high school. And so that, that was, uh, that was the 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 first show that we did. Do you want to guess what so, role I played? Um, you played Brutus. No, <laughs> but close. Who did you play? Did Julius you, did you Caesar. Actually play Julius I, Caesar? I was gonna say that's awesome. I'm totally that's ridiculous. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that had to be really cool. That had to be really fun. By the way, I'm very depressed to hear. That the Indiana Shakespeare Company is now defunct. That is, that's why did that happen? Why? Oh, that, arts that's funding. <laughs> yeah, doesn't that's, exist that's, in our country. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. It's uh, all right. We're not going to go into that. But yes, that's very sad to me. All right, so um, we are drafting lines from Shakespeare, and uh, as our guest, you get the first pick. Excellent. So I am going to go with the line that is for me. The Mike Trout of Shakespeare quotes. <laughs> it's got power. It's got speed. It's got a high batting average. And that is sweet are the uses of adversity. Um, Ooh. Yes. So my sort of thought, because there's so many different ways to approach this, is I decided to mostly pick lines that like I would have a framed print of on my wall like words that I'd also like to live by. Cause of course there are so many just like excellent phrasings that Shakespeare has that like, you know, are delightful to say. Um, but this particular quote, and this is why I have to pick it first, um, is not only what I have uh, it in a framed print on my wall. I actually have it tattooed on my body. <laughs> um, really? Yeah, I wow. do. Wow. Yeah. So I had, I had, and I have it on my ribs, um, so because that's sort of like pretty easy to hide for most roles. Like you know, even if you're filming something, there's probably only going to be like a couple of days when you might see that area, and the makeup artist has to put makeup on it, as opposed to like you know, I put this tattoo on my bicep, <laughs> and now you have to deal with it every single day. Um, so uh, I, for a long time, however, I joked that I wanted to get a tattoo that was like a heart with an arrow through it that said William 
on it and that people knowing perhaps that my husband's name is Eric would look at it and would be like, ha, huh, who's William? And I would be like, oh, Shakespeare or Yeats. Um, Cause those are my two favorite dead people. Sure. And uh, so, uh, however, this is never going to happen because I was never going to get a tattoo on my bicep. Um, and so instead I got the sort of like non joke version of that. I have, uh, on one rib, I have, um, everything we look upon is blessed, which is from dialogue of the self and soul by William Butler Yeats. And on the other rib, I have sweet are the uses of adversity. Wow. Um, okay. And- so. I have so many questions. Yes. I have so many questions. But the main question being, what was the tattoo person who did this? What what was their thought? I mean, it was were they were you like the seventh or eighth person that day who had gotten the Shakespearean quote tattooed on them, or or was this was this a fairly unique moment for them? Um, not I I got them <laughs> I got them separately. I didn't oh, get them okay, at the same okay, time. Okay. Um, All right. I, I didn't did, know if you I, had like a literary tattoo artist that you were working with or something. No, I just, I went to a fairly nice tattoo artist in New York that whose like name I'm blanking on just because like the, so the, um, the Yates is in a kind of like font, like typescript and that kind of thing. Actually, it's hard to do well. And, uh, you know, people, people can mess it up. And so I was like, I don't like, you know, Budget, budget tattoos. It's not a place to save your money, basically. So, um, and then, and then the Shakespeare, I sort of hemmed and hawed about which way to do it and finally decided to do it in my own handwriting. Um, wow. Yeah. And I, I like, uh, was actually thinking earlier when you were talking about typing out, uh, notes. I very much love writing notes by hand, but it's because I'm very vain about my handwriting like, oh. I, yeah, I won't, I, uh, I'm not going to be shy about it. I have beautiful handwriting <laughs> and I have worked very hard to have beautiful handwriting. I have all kinds of like nice D senders on my F's and like my D's curl back on themselves and stuff. So, yeah. So I thought, uh, I'll do it in my own handwriting. Um, and part of the thought behind that was, uh, so not only is Rosalind my home girl, she's like, my favorite character in Western literature. And I had a, a a professor in college who just decided to start calling me Rosalind. This was not a Shakespeare professor or anything. And I was like, I feel so seen. Um, (laughs) And uh, so like, that's part of the reason why I picked this. I love as you like it. It's not the best Shakespeare play, but it is one of my favorites. And uh, I decided uh, well, I decided a few years before it finally happened, but my husband and I co-produced a production of As You Like It ourselves um, with some of our uh, like best favorite actor friends. And it was a really wonderful experience, not just to get to do the play with my best friends and to get to do the play exactly the way that I wanted to do the play. But this really, this experience of like, we made this happen. We put up this show in New York and like it ended up being nominated for a number of awards. And awesome. and like where there was nothing, we made something. Was, it like sort of changed me on a molecular level 
as an artist to be like, I can make something. Because as actors, we're really just dependent on somebody else most of the time to let us do our craft. You know, we, we have to just like hope that we fit the thing that they're looking for because everybody's talented and that they will pick us and then we will get to do the thing that we love. But to sort of say, no, we're going to raise a bunch of money and, and we're going to slog and it's going to be hard and we're not going to sleep for like three months, but we're going to make this thing um, was really, really wonderful. So that's why it's also very like personal to me. Sure. Uh, sweet are the uses of adversity and why I sort of felt like, no, it'll be nice to have it in my own handwriting. Um, but I think to answer your question, the tattoo, but neither of the tattoo artists were at all phased or even very curious. Um, I guess probably at this point, they're not, they're not, they're like East village tattoo artists. Do you know what I mean? Like they're not, I think if I had just, you know, decided, I don't know, to like, I'm in St. Louis and I'm going to get a tattoo. Like the tattoo artist might've been like, Cool. So tell me about these things. But yeah, in New York, they were just like, all right, where do you want it? Okay. Yeah, this is going to be better. All right. By the way, uh, we have not mentioned uh, your your wonderful book of poetry, Curtain Speech, uh, an actor's poems about the theater, uh, which is available on Kindle and and other places if you would like to uh, to get it. And, and it, these are poems that that you wrote about uh, about uh, behind the stage. You know, which they're, they're amazing and and incredible. And now I'm thinking, I wish I had read them in your personal handwriting. It feels like that would have been oh. that would have been really cool to look at it that way. Did you did you read them? I I did. Of course, I read them. I, I well, I, my goodness, I, thank you so much. It's wonderful. Um, it's wonderful. Thank it's, you. It's, yes, I, you can you can you can feel uh, in your in your writing, and and I think you even talk about this at some point in there. Um, that you've you've done a lot of Shakespeare, like you can you I can have. yes you can feel the <laughs> you had one of my favorite actually you had a great line in there I mean I got to get my uh, I got to get going on my draft but you had a great line in there that I thought was great was that you had done so much Shakespeare that you basically used thesauruses to find simpler words uh, yes, than, that's me. than the one that you would normally use and that's I think that's pretty funny yeah one hundred percent excellent well that's very kind I will oh. I will. Um, send you, if if you would like, I will write out a poem and I will send it to you in my handwriting. Oh, see, this would be so wonderful. That would the be thing so I was going to say was at least you saw my drawings, which I did by hand. So, yes, um, yes, they're they're at the beginning, yeah. but but it's uh, it's, it's I, unfortunately I got it in Kindle, so it's I mean not to say just not quite the same. I mean I I would rather have the book version of it, but. Um, uh, but we'll go on from that. And and by the way, when you when you send me uh, the poem, which would be great, um, I will of course send you my upcoming book uh, on Harry Houdini, which is coming out in October. And I'm saying that in, for two reasons: one, um, because uh, because I will indeed send you a, a, an early uh, galley version of the book. But two, much more importantly, I never let a podcast go by without uh, promoting my book. So uh, in case anybody out there had didn't know, I, I wrote a book about Harry Houdini and Magic Today that's coming out October 22nd. Okay. Um, my first uh, pick in, in Shakespeare, and, I, and I'm going to admit that, that I'm going to be uh, outgunned here some, but, but as, a, as a fan, I kind of took those, those quotes that um, – that when I read, uh, I really thought, oh, I wish I had written that. Like, I love, 
the way that it's not just the not just the meaning because I mean obviously there's so much there, but the way that it sounds. And one of my favorites and my number one overall pick uh, is going to be um, from uh, from Much Ado About Nothing, and it is Oh What Men Dare Do, What Men May Do, What Men Daily Do, Not Knowing What They Do. I love so good the rhythm. Uh, the rhythm of that is you know as you know i think about rhythm so much and i know you have to as a uh both as a poet and as an actress you have to think about the rhythm of the words and how they how they sound coming together and it's such a it's such an under i don't it's not it's not an underappreciated part of writing because it's the it's for i think for the reader it's a huge huge part how the words sound off each other but it's the hardest part to teach and it's the hardest part to learn to make words sound off each other. And so the way that, that the way that works, all of these one syllable words bouncing off of each other like that's just beautiful. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, there's so much that I love about what you just said, because for me, and I think particularly as, as a young person who grew up, who grew up doing so much Shakespeare and who did so much Shakespeare earlier in my career, like the sound is to me indivisible from from the content yes and uh and it's to an extent that i feel like if if you do enough shakespeare it sort of be- begins to feel like all words are onomatopoeias like yeah. all words are in fact exactly they sound exactly like the thing that they're describing. Yeah. And and yeah. to me, I've always kind of thought that like if what if the, if a word's definition is its body, is its sort of like corporeal form, the the way that it sounds is actually its soul. Like yeah. is the artistic part of it is is and is the part that actually communicates meaning beyond just like literally what it means that's so true so it's it's so true well and you know what you know what happens when you see that um there are many places on the internet where you can go and and there are books that have been done where they will show a shakespeare quote and then to the right it'll it'll define the quote or it'll it'll explain what the quote means or what the context of the quote is and if you read them back to back you you realize there's there's no way to define the words. I mean, they, they can, they can explain to you what role that played in the play or, or whatever the case may be. But if you have a beautifully, you know, this beautiful little, this little gem of, of words put together, you, you can't define it. It's like, okay, yes, you can, you can explain like, Oh, well, this is by this word, they meant this or that, but you can't, you can never recapture what it means to 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 see and hear and voice out those words one after another after another. So uh, very, very cool. I feel good about my first pick. And you have the second pick. I have the second pick. And I was a little afraid that if you had read my book that you might try to snipe this pick from me. <laughs> I did consider um, it. <laughs> but I am going to pick suit the action to the word, the word to the action. 
Um, yes. This is from Hamlet's speech to the players. And I feel good that I'm just like diversifying my team. You know, the first one was verse from a comedy and this is prose from a tragedy. So I'm kind of covering all my bases. And this is Im important to me and I would like to have it as a print on my wall or even hypothetically a tattoo on my body. I believe, um, in, the, I believe in the book you claim that you wanted that as your tattoo. I believe, I believe that in your book you said that specifically could be a tattoo. So I'm surprised yeah, that it, that was not your tattoo choice. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that that was a thought for me for a long time before I sort of had this experience with uh, um, sure. with mounting as you like it. And so partly it was that I, I wanted to have something that that kind of commemorated that event. Um, but, you know, maybe I guess I, I have two sort of sets of back ribs that I can get two quotes on. So we'll see if I come out of this draft <laughs> deciding to get two more tattoos. Um so the reason that I love this so much uh, is, first of all, it's talking about acting um, and at an action in sort of um, script analysis terms is often like what it is that you're trying to do to the other person to sort of get you out of looking like you're trying to do something and get you into actually doing something. And so... Uh, even though I think that what Hamlet is talking about is he's talking about a gesture, the gesture being appropriate to whatever it is the, the actor is saying. And I think that that's true too, because I'm a big fan of sort of pragmatic storytelling that is like being sure that, oh, if this is my frame and I'm, uh, you know, if, if I know it's a close up, I know I can just like look down and away and it's going to convey a certain story and I can be thinking and feeling whatever I want to. It sort of like frees me up to end up probably thinking and feeling more things than if I worried about like, oh my God, here's this big scene or something like that. Anyway, total sidebar. Um, so that's, I think that's, that's important. Oh, sorry. Go that, ahead. No, I was going to say that's very, very interesting. Do you, do you often... Or you know, you know whether whether it's uh, on the stage or on television or or in film or whatever you do, do you have to be feeling the emotion that you are supposed to be projecting in order to project that emotion, or do you not have to be feeling that emotion in order to project that emotion? Well, I mean, I think that the the acting community is divided on whether or not that is the case, except for with, in my opinion, with on-camera stuff, I think Ooh. you have to be feeling it. You have to be feeling something. You have to be thinking real person thoughts because the camera is so close to you that if you're thinking actor thoughts instead of thinking just person thoughts, just being that person in that place, like it, the camera will pick up something. Even if it's like, oh, that's really good acting instead of that's just a person behaving. So, yeah, in in theater, I feel like because the the lens of the audience is a little farther away, like you can fake it a little bit more. You can sort of like get by on technique because you're not, you know, also in theater, you have to repeat more or less the same thing night after night after night. So it's not you have to cut yourself some slack that like you might not feel it tonight like you did last night. But for me, the ideal, like, 
is always to feel the thing. I think that's actually sort of the actor's responsibility is to actually go through what the person is going through so that the audience can also go through that thing with the actor. Um, Interesting. Interesting. But it's good to have technique. Not everybody feels that way. And it's good to have technique for days when, uh, when that doesn't happen. As long as this is a draft, you can say like, as an actor, that would give you a higher floor. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you know that your technique can carry you through in a moment when like the Holy Spirit has not descended and you don't actually feel the things, then yeah, it's going to give you a higher floor as an actor. I think that's very similar to being a writer. I think that's very, very similar. I think mm. there are days as a writer, especially when you're a daily writer, when you're writing on deadline, when you're, um, you know, writing often, um, you know, sometimes the, 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 the muse is not, uh, is not there and you have to get by on technique and that just happens uh, sometimes. And, and uh, uh, you don't want it to happen. You prefer that it didn't happen. You prefer that it was all flowing from someplace deep within you, but uh, it doesn't always happen. Just doesn't yeah. always, uh, doesn't always get there. Very interesting. Very interesting. I have right. one last thing I want Please. to say about this, which, Please. which just that suit the action to the word, to the word, to the, the word, to the action also is it applies to me um, for writing that yeah. I like the the gesture that the language is making to suit the emotional content. So like I and and this is something that Shakespeare does all the time. And I I something uh, uh, one line that I reference in curtain speech is this line in the Scottish play, which I never say the name because I've done it twice and it's a cursed play, uh, in which uh, Big Mac says, uh, no, this my hand would rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. And those are, it's the same thought, but the emotional content is totally different with multitudinous seas incarnadine rather than green one red. And so like Shakespeare uses complicated language when the thought is complicated and really simple language when the thought is simple. And I kind of like doing the same thing, even though it's not always super popular. <laughs> so now I'm, now this. I'm done talking about my second draft pick <laughs> and I won't talk about all of them for that long. I promise. Please do talk about all of them as long as you would like. All right. That was a very, it's a very good pick. I am actually going to go to Hamlet as well uh, with my second pick. And, um, uh, the line that everybody knows, that most people know, I would imagine, is uh, "brevity is the soul of wit," uh, which is which is that's one you see on lots of little framed uh, things, or people will uh, knit that, or however however they'll cross stitch it or whatever. Uh, however, I love yeah, I love the whole quote. I think the whole quote is way better than I mean because brevity is the soul of wit's fine. It's fine. That anybody could have said it could have been Mark Twain. I mean that that's that's one that could just be anybody. However, the whole line is so wonderful because it's there. Therefore, since brevity is the soul of wit and tediousness the limbs and outward flourishes, I will be brief. Your noble son is mad. I love that's really like like first of all, not there is there's no brevity in the beginning there, none at all. But then we get to the brevity right there. Your noble son is mad. Bam. That's it. You, your, your kid is a nut job. That's basically we're right there at the end. Uh, love it. Love that. I love that, that, that to me, it's like, there's so many times that I'm sure you've, you've have felt this many, many times. 
there's so many times that like Shakespeare is like just like there's some kind of gag going on with with Shakespeare like that, that you mm-hmm. know there were like inside jokes that he was doing and just I love that that brevity is the soul of wit is followed by this you know tediousness and limbs and all that and then getting to the brief point and then then truly uh I don't know how much wit there is but there's plenty of brevity in uh, in your noble son is mad yeah, and you get you get all of those like well, no, not noble, but it's almost monosyllables after yes. all, you know all of that complicated language, and you've hit on the thing that I always, I mean, clearly at this point in the podcast, everybody knows that my like house banner is actually like verbosity is the soul of wit. I promise, <laughs> um, but uh, but that that's a joke that Shakespeare is making in that yeah. moment is that Polonius is not at all brief. Uh, no, uh, no. Yeah. And, and so for, for him to say that is, is yeah, kind of like a buried joke that doesn't, yeah. <laughs> doesn't often get recognized. So thank you for bringing Absolutely. that to the light. All yeah. right. Your third pick. And, and by the way, I feel very good about my team. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie to you. I feel, I feel like my team, I feel like I've got, I've got a little speed. I've got a little power. I'm feeling pretty good about my team right now. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good <laughs> It's a pretty good team. Um, so my next uh, pick, having done a uh, comedy and a tragedy, I'm now going to do a romance uh, from The Winter's Tale. It is required that you do awake your faith. Ooh. And I don't actually love The Winter's Tale a lot, um, and maybe that's just because the young woman in it, Perdita, is like just total milk toast. But Hermione and Paulina are great. Right. And this is Paulina has this line. This is at the end um, when uh, Leontes has she Paulina has brought Leontes and Perdita to see the like, quote unquote, statue of Hermione. Uh, and. This is what she says to him before she sort of says, I can make this statue come alive for you. And what I love about this moment and about this moment as an actor and why this is important to me as an actor um, and why I'd have it in a print on my wall is because I think in that moment, it is both true that like, that is Hermione and Hermione has been spirited away and been, you know, like living on oatmeal in a back room somewhere. And it's also true that it is a statue and that Paulina is bringing her to life. And I think that those two truths like coexist. It is magic and it is the magic of the theater. And we, as the people in the audience are, are seeing something that is as real as what the character Leontes and Perdita are seeing. And so for me, it's very much about setting the table for being an actor, for saying, it is required of me that I awake my faith, that I am this person, and this is my life, and these are the people in my life, you know, the other characters in the play, and that it is... It is real for us, even though what is also true is we are actors and you're my friend in real life and like we're going to go get drinks after this. But sort of like those those truths overlaid on top of each other and that what binds them is faith. 
So that's, that's beautiful. That's my that's it. my third pick. You you you're so much better at this than I am. This was that was. I've a done great a lot pick. of Shakespeare plays. What can I you, say? <laughs> you do come in with a little bit of an advantage. If we if we were drafting 1970s Cleveland Indians, I'd have a shot. Maybe I yeah, Maybe. and I yeah could I'd <laughs> I'd have done some research, but yeah, you would have done the research and probably would have beaten me there. No, too. no, all right, no possible. With my third pick, uh, I am going to go. I wanted like a uh, a little bit of you know so much of. Shakespeare is, you know, his his poetic sense and his uh, his, um, you know, the, the having all kind. Of, you know, obviously the sonnets are are the sonnets, but but having these these moments and characters that he has, kind of giving these these little speeches that rhyme and 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 which is always you know a wonderful little Shakespearean moment. Uh, so I'm going to go to measure for measure and and oh, choose. Yes. What, it's a pretty famous, pretty famous, but I like the whole thing, not just the the single line. I like the whole thing. Well, heaven forgive him and forgive us all. Some rise by sin and some by virtue fall, which I think is uh, excellent uh, in so many different ways. Uh, I think it's uh, it, first of all, it, 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 again, like I wanted all of these. There's a there's a beautiful rhythm and sound to it, uh, but also that's that's a pretty complicated uh thought to be to be you know put in um you know sort of in in just a few words to come out with with such a complicated uh thought and of course in in the in the context of the the play it doesn't it's really sort of this greek chorus that doesn't it, that isn't really heard and 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 so on and so forth but but uh, i love that whole thing and then of course love just the 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 idea that I do believe to be true that some rise by sin and some by virtue fall something that uh, that I think uh, about quite a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like so much you know Shakespeare is always very aware of uh, dualities. I guess yes that you know much. that that it's it's you know it's why Harold Bloom writes that he's the creation of modern psychology is because the characters are really complicated and. And yes. ultimately, good characters have bad things about them, and bad characters have redeeming qualities, and that's why it's so interesting. And we still like doing and seeing Shakespeare plays. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's it's actually quite surprising how many of sort of Shakespeare's most famous lines are that are you know are are opposites coming together, dualities, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, the, you can think of a lot of them that that really you know, are, are sort of, you, you say one thing, you say the opposite and you bring it together. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very, and I mean, I don't know. I just sort of feel like, because that's a great truth that anybody who like looks and looks at life and thinks about it is going to frequently observe. Excellent. All right. Well, you have the fourth pick. And I was super excited about your pick because I feel like I have, I have the pick in so many ways that is like the, the partner to that. Pick. Oh, excellent. Um, and uh, this is from All's Well That Ends Well. So I sure. love the problem plays. I mean, also, just for anybody, like, keeping score at home, just note that, like, I have a comedy, I have a tragedy, I have a romance, and now I've got a problem play. Um, yeah. But also, um, I just love them because they're, they're, for me, the most, like, humans are complicated and, you know, good people have bad things about them and vice versa. Uh, and 
I also really love Troilus and Cressida, even though nobody loves Troilus and Cressida, but I, I did not pick a line from Troilus and Cressida. Part of the reason is I really also felt like somewhere in here, somewhere in my draft, I should have uh, a line that I have actually said on a stage um, because uh-huh. Though I have been in As You Like It, I that that's Duke Sr.'s line. It's not Rosalind's line. So this is from Helena, um, who I have always considered to be the female Hamlet um, in regards to how many good soliloquies she has. She has, I mean, just the best soliloquies, if you're a lady, in my opinion. Sure. Um, So this is four lines, but it's one sentence according to Shakespeare, I promise. And also it's rhyming. So that's why I was like really excited that that we're making sort of parallel picks. Um, But the line is, our remedies oft in ourselves do lie, which we ascribe to heaven. The faded sky gives us free scope, only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. So I love this partly because Helena's also my homegirl. Like if I was drafting Shakespearean heroines, it would be like Rosalind first, Helena second. Um, Yeah, I love her. Uh, But also I really like this thought and it's very much, I feel like the way in which I try to live my life. That is any good that I think we want to see in our external world, whether that's like our jobs or our relationships or our bank account, whatever it is, I think it starts with ourselves and our inner world and um, and then sort of eventually the world will come to reflect that. That is a sort of like crazy woo-woo belief because, you know, I'm an actor and I'm a crazy person and I'm like, of course I like all these <laughs> ideas, but that is what I feel about life and it is what has been true for me in my life. So, uh, this, uh, this is, I think, uh, it's, you know, it's about being a self motivator and a self starter. And it's also sort of like the nicer version, um, of, of, if we're going to take it back to Julius Caesar, um, that, that famous line that, that Cassius has, um, about, you know, our, our fault, dear Brutus is, not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. It's like the nice version of that. Um, because yeah. of course, what Helen is doing here is she has this idea, even though she is you know, not of the same class as the man that she loves, is that she's gonna go and cure the king of his fistula, which is just a word that's totally as gross as it sounds. Um, and, uh, and by that, she's gonna elevate herself and be worthy of him eventually, so. Um, I yeah, love I, I, I love, love this little quatrain. That's that's fantastic. Just fantastic. All right, I'm going to go with my fourth pick. And and now I'm looking and realizing that I've just taken, at this point, I've taken pretty pretty famous lines. Uh, so, But it doesn't matter. This is what I got. So uh, I am going to go with one that I have actually used in, uh, in uh, a story fairly recently. I actually used a uh, movie version of this uh, one. It's it's one of Shakespeare's most famous lines. It's Juliet in the balcony speech mm-hmm. in Romeo and Juliet, where she says, that which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. Uh, 
powerful, you, you know, I, I don't know, some, when words, when, when, when phrases get spoken uh, too many times, they, they begin to lose their, their power and their meaning. And, and obviously that's one's very famous. Um, but it's also led to one of my favorite lines in one of my favorite little movies, my favorite year, uh, where uh, the Peter, um, uh, I'm blanking on his last name, but the, the main character um, from Lawrence of Arabia and all that, he, he is a hero and Peter O'Toole. Exactly. He is a hero uh, in the, in the movie, uh, a, a great actor who has become a drunk and a, and a, and a, and a, you know, sort of a, a, a bad guy. And he's sort of trying to find some sort of, uh, some sort of uh, direction in his life. And he, he meets this young comedy writer and, and the, the movie is about uh, their relationship. Uh, and at one point he, he admits that he had changed his name and and uh, and he he was they were talking about the changing of the name and Peter O'Toole said a rose by any by any other name would wither and die. So like there's a mm. there's you know which is very interesting and 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 uh, and fun and I think about those two things and I actually recently did a story uh, where I used both of those quotes to, to talk about something and I'm and and I'm blanking on on why I used it, but it is the only, it is the only quote that, that, uh, is in my, uh, draft that I've actually used in, in print. So, uh, I'll go with it. And it's a good quote. It's a good, it's a good line. Yeah. That Juliet, she's pretty good. She's got some good, she's got some good speeches herself. I, I played she, Juliet she, three times. Um, wow. and, and I love her and I did, there, there were a lot of, you know, it was it was it was hard to narrow it down to five, but I keep keeping to the like. Do I want this on a print on my wall? Really helped me codify. But when you but when you're doing something like Juliet, that's just so you know. I mean, it's been done so many times that you're having to do that balcony speech that's been done a ten billion times, and you have to find some sort of new way to do the Romeo Romeo thing. I mean, it was, is that a challenge when when it's like such uh, well covered ground? Yeah, it's a little bit of a challenge. I mean, two two things. Two things. One is that I remember being, of course, not a 13-year-old at the time that I was playing Juliet. I tried to think very hard about who was I when I was 13 years old mm-hmm. and like trying to bring as much of that to it as possible so that it so that I felt like she was more real even if it was like she was more real to me. Um, rather than being sort of this idea of who Juliet is, like thirteen-year-olds are hella awkward, you know. Uh, oh yeah, so... well, I have two. I had two of them. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> so yeah, I allowed myself to be like pretty awkward as Juliet and had a, a good time. But I remember with that particular line, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? I just so a cardinal rule for me is like don't split up the verse line. However, another cardinal rule is sometimes break your cardinal rules. So <laughs> I I got through that line by basically splitting up the verse line and making the two Romeos be very different thoughts. So that the first one was oh. like, oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? So that the first one was like, oh, gosh, you're so great. And then the second one was like, ah, shoot. And then the third one is like, man, this situation sucks. Um, so, yeah, that's I mean, I just did a sort of like a bad, bad impression of my former self playing Juliet. But, yeah, that was how I got around that problem. 
I love that. I love that. That's that's good. I I, I really think that of all of, of Shakespeare's plays, uh, Romeo and Juliet would be the one that would definitely be uh, changed by Instagram. Just feel like there would be... <laughs> there would, really really affect the entire play that, that's yeah. just my thought on that yeah 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 because you know that juliet and romeo would have oh. like finstas you know so that like <laughs> she you know she would let him know on the like secret instagram that not everybody was on that like you know i'm not actually gonna be dead yeah Meanwhile, I could just see Juliet in her room, like having posted a photo and looking at all of her friends going, oh, you're so pretty. You know, yeah. like that's, that's what my that's what my daughter does basically nonstop. So, yeah. uh, all right. It's time for your fifth pick. This is it. This is your last pick. Okay. So having listened to the podcast before, I have noted that people at this moment sometimes also throw in a runner up that they're not going to draft, but yes, they just they want do. to mention. Yes, they, yes and, you are correct. And so my... One that I really wanted to draft just for fear, sheer absurdity um, is from Henry IV, Part One. It is Hotspur. This is not a comedy. And part of the reason I really wanted to draft this was because then I would also have a history. And like, so my five, I would have covered all the different kinds of plays. Um, sure. And, but it is hilarious to me. Like, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to say it without laughing. And if I do say it without laughing, I'm going to be really <laughs> proud of myself. Um, so it's Hotspur. And he's talking about this guy, Glendower, that he is like talking about all this mystical stuff. I mean, for example, Glendower definitely thinks that like your external reality is a reflection of your internal reality. And Hotspur doesn't buy any of that shit. So um, what he says about Glendower is... I had rather live with cheese and garlic in a windmill far than feed on Kate's and have him talk to me in any summer house in Christendom. I made it through without laughing. I think this is so funny. It's just like desperately funny to me. Kate's, by the way, are cakes. Um, so he's like, I don't want to hear that guy talk to me ever again. I'd rather live in a windmill and just eat cheese and garlic, which by the way, like I love cheese, so it doesn't sound that bad, than like... <laughs> just eat cakes and live in a summer house and have him talk to me. Like it's, it's desperately funny to me. It's so funny. Um, that is very funny. But part of the reason that I, I had a hard time committing to this as my last pick is I'm not sure I want it in a print on my wall. Um, and yeah. also that Henry V was like one of the first men that I ever loved. Picking a Hotspur quote is difficult. Um, that said, I have played Princess Catherine in Henry V, and I have played Kate Percy in Henry IV One. So, wow. like, I've actually been married to both of those guys. Uh, <laughs> I mean, to quote King Lear, I was contracted to them both. Uh, so, yeah, it's a little Phillies and Mets with me um, with uh, Henry V and Hotspur. So I'm not picking that quote. I am instead picking a, a quote from Twelfth Night. So I'm picking another comedy and it's uh, it's it's prose again. Um, and I'm picking it because I say this all the time in my life. If this were played upon a stage now, I could condemn it as an improbable fiction. Um, this is ah. Fabian is talking about the sort of the, the clowning that like 
Mariah and Toby and uh, Sir Andrew are doing of Malvolio. What's happened is just like the famous scene where Malvolio comes in with like the yellow cross garter legs and Olivia's totally horrified. And these, you know, these clowns are, uh, are laughing about Malvolio and Olivia. And it's just, it's just so delightful, like to say for that, to happen for something ridiculous to happen in life and to be able to say, if this were played upon a stage right now, I could condemn it as an improbable fiction. Um, but also it has like, I've always been delighted by this line um, for it's sort of uh, like meta nature, you know, because everyone in the audience right. is like delightful because you know what they are on the stage. <laughs> um, it's sort of like, it's like the comedy version of, uh, to bring it back to Julius Caesar again, that line in Julius Caesar, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something like, how many ages hence shall this are seen be acted in states unborn and accents yet unknown? And every time I see Julius Caesar and I hear that, I just get this, like, the chills of history running up my spine. Um, and it's just very satisfying. It makes me feel like I... I am sort of experiencing all of the productions of the play that have ever happened for like one second. Time kind of unspools itself and I can see them all and it's glorious. Um, anyway, that went in a direction that I wasn't anticipating, but yes. No, that's gonna, that was awesome. That's, <laughs> that's, awesome. that's going to be it's my a, last pick. It's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic fifth pick. All right, I'm going to go ahead and just get my fifth pick in. Uh, I, again, I'm going to kind of go with the, with a, a pretty famous line and, and one that, uh, that uh, again, I just, I like the way, I like the rhythm and the sounds of it. And it's uh, from Macbeth. It is Macbeth uh, giving himself the aside uh, where he says, uh, stars hide your fires. Mm -hmm. Let not light see my black and deep desires. I, I love Shakespeare did a lot of cool things with stars in general, like using stars in, in countless uh, different uh, ways and and soliloquies and 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 so on and so forth, and I, I think it was you know I mean it, I look back and think well that's he didn't have much else to work with really I mean you know <laughs> when you're when you're talking about that time, uh, but I'd love that that just you know there's this there, there's a there's a power in that uh, Macbeth is is to me a, a particularly unlikable uh, I'm not a I don't. I have much use for Macbeth himself. Uh, but, but there's something in there about him, you know, just, just feeling, uh, I don't know, exposed or, 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 or something. And, and I, I love the way that that's rhythm. And I love that he says it to himself. He, he speaks to himself in rhyme. I love that. It's, uh, it's just, uh, I, I don't know. I just like the way that sounds and the way that feels. I think is that the, that's the last line of a scene, right? Because normally it, the last, like, it, it certainly it in, is, in verse, the last lines of the scene. Oh, it's not. Oh, oh my goodness. It's not. Okay. It's not. The, it's, it's in the middle. It's in the middle because then he, he talks about uh, uh, the eye wink at the hand, that whole, that whole bit. Um, so uh, it's good. It's just, I just like the way it sounds. I, I don't, I don't feel like I have uh, it, it's a late round pick. It, I could have, I could have taken it uh, in, uh, in, you know, as a, as a free agent, I could have, I could have tried to pick him up. I actually was going to do, uh, one of my favorite lines from Merchant of Venice is that just the simple to do a great right, do a little wrong. 
but I felt like that was, that's a lot like what I picked for measure for measure where I was kind of picking both sides and the whole duality of it and, and, and all of that uh, sort of thing. So I, I went away from that, but I, but I considered picking that as well. Yeah. I also thought about something from, from Merchant of Venice, but decided not to pick it, but I have sort of complicated feelings about that play as I think we all do as 21st century humans. Um, yes, as, as we should, yeah, as we I, should have. I have, yeah. have done, I played Portia and like, she's wonderful, but it was, it was a hard process. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> now, do you think that we have given, Ed, having listened to the podcast before, do you feel like we're giving the podcast, our, our podcast listeners way too much meaning by bringing all this Shakespeare in? Or, or do you feel like we have, we have been true to the task of being as meaningless as we can be? Um. Ah, I, well, I don't know. And that's one of the reasons why I sort of hedged about like, I don't know, will podcast <laughs> listeners like if we. Oh, no. If they're listening to this, then, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't worry about whether they like it or not. They, 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 they'll more than happily let us know. And I would hope that podcast listeners will let us know who won the draft. Although, I mean, it's pretty clear if I did like a poll on this one, I've done polls in the past with Mike when we do uh when we've done uh particularly close drafts and 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 uh, just to see you know who who they thought won this would be like the only twitter poll ever where you would be like 100% you like everybody which you like nobody like nobody in my family would even choose me that would I don't I don't know so. that that's true yeah i i mean i, think, I don't know I think that's true, true. I, at all i think it's actually I think it's true. I feel good. I feel good. One that I feel good that I was able to, with my limited, uh, you know, reading of it, I was an English major as well. Uh, so I, I do have, uh, a certain love for Shakespeare, which was why it was great. So I feel good that I was able to hold my own, but you know, I'm going against, you know, the Mike Trout of, 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 of this kind of draft. Not so, at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very much so. All right. As you know, we end this thing with one last meaningless thing to end this meaningless thing. It's one last Sports and we draft things we know, like how beaches are terrible places to go. No hot fruit for Michael or Diet Coke for Joe. The podcast woe. It's one last woe. This is uh, guest choice. Do you want to go first, or would you like me to go first? Oh, it it doesn't matter to me. Well, then feel free, please. I, All right. I would, I'm ready for your meaningless thing. Yeah. Well, I actually I wasn't sure if earlier when you asked if it was meaningless enough, if that was if that was you were trying to uh, sort of create a segue into like let's create an antidote of all that meaning that came before <laughs> with something truly meaningless. And what I the good news that I have for you is that yes. what I had thought about maybe saying, because I had a hard time thinking of something that I was like, what is truly meaningless, um, was something that that the meaning was merely hard to divine. But today I was gifted uh, something that is truly meaningless, um, which is when I was, I was coaching for, uh, I was taping an audition earlier today. And as I was coming down, I sort of used the stairs because I'm an inveterate, like annoying, take the stairs type of a person. Um, as sure. I was taking the stairs down from my coach's uh, apartment, I went sort of through this back way and there was a banana peel 
sitting upright, like in the middle of the stairwell. And wow. I had, uh, I, I have like three or four thoughts about this. <laughs> Number one, it was a flashback to other times in my life when I have seen a banana peel sitting upright. So basically where like the, the kind of the legs of the peeled banana are splayed out on the ground and sure. the, the end of it is sort of like pointing up different than like if a little you, banana tent. Like, yes, like a little banana tent is exactly the way to describe it. This is different than if you see a banana sort of lying sideways, like a banana squid, for example. Right, um, right. Which I, like, I was trying to have a visual recall of, have I ever seen a banana sitting sideways like that? And I haven't. I've only ever seen bananas sitting upright like that. And I can think of... At two other instances, when I have seen a banana sitting, like with no one around, a banana sitting upright like that. And one of them I'm going to talk about in a minute. But it made me think about this. Did somebody put that banana peel down like that on purpose? <laughs> it would be hard to imagine just dropping the banana peel and, and it landing in that position. Sure. However... If somebody, if in the three instances when I have seen a banana peel, like a tent, in my life, if somebody did put it down that way, I consider that a gift to the universe. Because a <laughs> banana peel sitting upright is inherently hilarious. It's very funny. Like, like it just is. A banana peel sideways, like, not funny. A banana peel upright, like, jokes. What this made me think about is, are banana peels actually slippery or are they is the is the farce of somebody slipping on a banana peel which i feel like in that you will always see in the cartoons the banana peel will always be sitting upright that way is is that merely predicated on the notion that a banana sorry my dog has a lot of lot to say about this um is that yeah. merely predicated on the notion that a banana peel sitting upright is inherently humorous like it is a funny thing to see and therefore to trip on mabel no right um so that's that's thought number 2 it also okay. i had a moment of like eternal return with the banana peel because I remembered that the last time that I saw a banana peel sitting upright was when I was filming this horror movie that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, seven years ago, for those of you who are still with us. And sure. it was in the stairwell of a hospital. And I was wow. very confused to see a banana peel in, it, it was, so it was the unused wing of a hospital because they were letting us use it to film, but this led to this other comical moment in which we had really been the only people in that sort of like wing, because we were, we were using it to, you know, to film different locations in the hospital. And on this day that we were standing in the stairwell that also contained the banana peel, a, a very confused woman came down the stairwell and saw me and the um, person playing the other lead, I can't like really talk about the film yet, but this is a this is a more famous person than me. Like not necessarily a like cover of Us Weekly level star, but like okay. a person that most people know, a recognizable person. And we sure. both have guns out. 
we're ready to like go into the hallway to like run down the hallway and like try to catch the person. But we're just holding at the moment, but we're standing there with guns. I'm wearing a police uniform because I play a sheriff in the movie and he's wearing his, you know, like detective badge and all that stuff. And so we're standing there with guns, like getting ready to go in the zone or whatever. We're in our, you know, it is required that you do awake your faith moment with our guns. And then there's also like, somebody uh there's like a pa there but this woman walks down and for a second i just saw the situation from her eyes like what why are there police officers with guns in this hospital and why do i sort of recognize like 1.15 of them um and it kind of made me think like did they not tell people like oh there's gonna be a movie shooting in this part of the hospital (laughs) anyway the banana brought this back, all back. And I had not thought about that moment and that woman, um, but it, it, the banana brought me great joy. Um, that is, yeah. as a banana on its side always will. You know, I, I, we, uh, we sort of hit a crescendo of our um, meaningless thing when uh, I told the story that is an absolutely true story of being at the World Series probably two or three years ago now uh, at the world series, walking across the infield to, uh, to go before the game uh, to go uh, talk to somebody and me stepping on a rake and the rake bouncing up and hitting me in the head. Oh, God. Like, literally like the Simpsons thing oh, actually happened to me. Yeah. And yeah. so I believe if I had been there, I would have slipped on that banana. I really believe I would have not seen it. And I would have, it would have been like a, like a Charlie Chaplin thing. I would have just, just stepped on it, slipped and, and, and hurt my back. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's sort of how I am. All right. My, my meaningless thing was going to be uh, basically something that my wife said to me literally before I started doing this, uh, this podcast uh, where she was talking about dinner tonight. And she was telling me that it, that we were having a, uh, um, chicken, chicken pizza, but, hmm. but she was explaining it, that it was not pizza with chicken on it. It was chicken that tastes like pizza. And it took so long to get that thought <laughs> out. It was an astonishing array of, of who's on first, just like, I'm sorry, what? It's a chicken. What do you, the pizza of, I, it was very sad, but I'm not going to do that as my one last meeting this thing because exactly as you were talking, I got a text, my nightly text from Mike Shore uh, about the Yankees tonight, which he always does every night. So this is Monday night. His text, and I will give uh, the thing, it is first, it is he copied and pasted uh, the play-by-play of the Yankees-Mariners uh, game, uh, uh, this one play-by-play where Pharaoh Estrada homers, and then parentheses one, on a fly ball to right center field, Gio Urshela scores. And then he wrote oh, below that, who did what and who scored, question mark, exclamation point. Because that's who the Yankees are. Oh, that's who the Yankees are. They're also winning 5 nothing because they're the Yankees. And it doesn't matter if it's Gio Urshela and Thero Estrada. It, doesn't, it just doesn't matter. They're, oh, they will haunt us for the rest of our lives. That's yeah. just who they are. Yeah. And that, that whole Mariners series has got to be so sad. I was a huge James Paxton fan. But, like, when somebody sure. gets traded to the Yankees, it's like they died. 
I'm like, oh, James Paxton, like, (laughs) R.I.P. you, your beard. It's actually more, like, to follow the zombie analogy and bring it all the way around with Game of Thrones, it's kind of like James Paxton becomes a White Walker, um, which is how I feel, like, you know, when when somebody gets traded to the Yankees. I'm so hopeful that you never fall in love with a player and buy their shirt and then have them get traded to the Yankees. It has happened to me. Oh, what did you do? How did you handle this? I was very sad. It was Stephen Drew. Um, I, oh, sure. I just loved Stephen Drew for for because I I love every player for a different reason. And I what I loved about Stephen Drew was the way he could just he had so much panache as a fielder. He could just execute this like triple Lutz double play. And then, you know, come up to the plate and be kind of like Charlie Brown. And it was just like so just really endearing to me. And then it was it was hard for me when he was traded to the Yankees because I was like, those stupid Yankees fans aren't going to appreciate his defensive prowess. They're just going to look at his batting average and be like, why is this asshole on our team? Because they're Yankees fans. Um, so it was really sad. It was very sad. For no, me. It, it, that, that does sound. That is incredibly sad. That is yeah. incredibly sad. Ellen Adair, I cannot thank you enough for spending this time here because this is, <laughs> I believe we have set, we might have set a podcast record yes! for length. I, yes. It's close. It's close. We've had it in the 153 range. I think we're at 155 here. I did so tell I think we you, might have the new record. I did tell you that like, I may be on this earth to talk for a long time about meaningless things. <laughs> so I'm glad that at least I delivered on my promise. Oh my gosh, you're you're the best, and you must come back every time that you can. I will. Uh, this is awesome. Where can people? Where can? What do you want to tell us about what you got coming up? Will you, oh, do you sure. have something coming up that that people would love to hear about? Um, well, uh, I cannot talk about the film that I was just filming right. just yet. I keep on thinking I'm going to be able to, and it keeps on not being the case. Um, but you can find me um, on Twitter at Ellen underscore Adair. That's A-D-A-I-R. I'm also on Instagram at Ellen Adair G, just the letter G at the end. Um, G. And uh, my website is ellenadair.com. So right. yeah, that's 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 where I guess you can you know get updates about what whatever I'm on or like I've been working you, on. This. You're working on a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, you're working on a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah, right. Right now, the the main thing that's on the front burner is I'm working on writing a, a, a TV series, and my writing partner and I are hoping to produce a proof of concept for it, hopefully this summer. So um, that's that's. That's what I probably have coming up next, but you know what? It's the life of an actor. And so I never know. Maybe it's going to be something else. You never know. You never know where it's going to go. Well, Ellen, thank you so much. You're always welcome here. You're the greatest and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Oh gosh. Really my pleasure.